Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. If a person's life is so alien and inconceivable and untouchable to you, does that mean you no longer owe them compassion? The world's population officially reached 8 billion in November of this year. There are more of us more tightly squeezed into the confined spaces of our cities than ever before, and yet we've never been so disconnected from each other. What do you really know about your neighbours? The world has become both more suffocating and more isolating in equal measure. And it's within this strange contradiction that we find ourselves in the novel common decency. Two women living separate lives in an apartment building in Belfast, both caught up in their own messes. They end up with their lives entwined. Siobhan, consumed by her affair with a married man, and Lily, trapped between grief and anger since the death of her mother. Enjoyable and frustrating in all the most wonderful ways, this book was a delight to read. And I'm really pleased to say that its author, Susanna Dickey, is my guest today. Chapter 1. Unlikable. Siobhan's days revolve around the sporadic texts and rare visits of her married lover, and she barely notices Lily, the strange girl who lives in the same building. But grief-stricken Lily is keeping a close eye on Siobhan, whose life seems so much better and more fulfilling than her own, and this leads her to form a dark obsession. Throughout the novel, we get to see life from the differing perspectives of these two women, whose lives run in parallel but are so profoundly divided. I love characters like Lily and Siobhan because they're so wonderfully normal. And by that, I mean massively screwed up. They feel brilliantly real. But as we learnt during our chat with Emma Hughes, the author of No Such Thing as Perfect, some readers get upset by characters who make flawed decisions, seemingly wanting characters that they like, rather than those that challenge them. But isn't that the job of a writer, to present you with interesting, surprising and sometimes infuriating characters, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, I mean, like you say, it seems like occasionally a reader wants a character that either reflects their own virtues back at them or embodies a kind of ethical framework that is aspirational or or at the very least a character starts off ethically ambiguous and by the end has had some sort of redemptive arc. And I always find that strange because like you say, it seems so unreflective of reality. And You know, I wonder if it's because maybe right now in the kind of, you know, moment in which we're existing, there is a sort of fundamental absence of hope or improvement that maybe people want a greater sense of escapism from their literature. But if you are a reader of realist fiction and you aren't willing to go for sort of genre escapism, then maybe the kind of escapism you want is in your character arc, is in the kind of people you're reading who could conceivably exist in your moment, but are existing in a way that might provide you with some kind of kernel of of hope or redemption. But I've just never been really interested in writing that. The thing that kind of Cezanne said um, was that he wanted to astonish Paris with an apple. 
And I do think that trying trying to find the the interesting and the artistic and lyricality and imagistic in the incredibly quotidian, um, but also in the stagnant in in people who are or who are fundamentally, you know, more than even just ethically ambiguous, ethically ambivalent and finding the lyricality of their lives, even while they themselves are potentially fundamentally ugly people, has always been what I've tried to do. We'll talk about Siobhan in a moment, because I do want to talk about her, well, her blind spot, which is her relationship with Andrew. But let's start with Lily, because we we come across this story from Lily's perspective first. And Lily is clearly grief-stricken. and. Yet she allows herself to wander into very unsocial, unreasonable behavior. And there's a bit of creeping death about it because she doesn't go full cray cray from the very beginning, but she does get there eventually. And I wondered whether, I mean, I could feel this is about people living in a in very close proximity to each other. And, and maybe we should talk about lockdown as well, because I did get a sense of that, you know, during it is that is lives being lived in close proximity. But she starts off fairly normal, trying to be friendly and and goes to fairly dark places. And I wondered whether her own grief or her own coping mechanism has in some way convinced her that her behavior is acceptable because of the grief that she is suffering. And I honestly wanted to reach into the book and shake her and say, it is not acceptable. get your stuff together because this is this is getting out of hand now when you first thought about her was there an element that actually she's going to hide behind the grief and go to places she might not want to go because that's that's certainly how it comes across my initial intention for kind of what i wanted the book to be about was um about empathy as a concept but the the kind of fundamental failure of of empathy as a concept you know this idea that we can relate to someone else and therefore adjust our behavior. And and it's thinking about what happens if you objectively can't relate to another person. If a person's life is so alien and inconceivable and untouchable to you, does that mean you no longer owe them compassion? Can we only feel compassion for those whose lives are somehow adjacent to our own so that we can try and imagine how we would feel in their scenario. If that hypothesizing is fundamentally out of our reach, where do we go? And in Lily's case, she goes to the farthermost reaches of her own sanity. And because Siobhan's life, it transpires, isn't tangible to her. She would like it to be, she would like to find herself within Siobhan's life and therefore normalize herself off kind of Siobhan's comforting ballast, but but she can't reach it. And so instead she lashes out, she attacks, she goes on the aggressive. And part of that is to do with the failure of communication. Both of these characters are fundamentally incapable of communicating their needs and their wants and their pains. And it's how when you don't have those communication skills, you have nowhere to go but inward. And when the only person talking to you is yourself, (laughs) it's invariably going to lead to something kind of toxic and poorly conceived. It reminded me in a really strange way, and this isn't a spoiler because this doesn't happen, but I don't know whether you've seen the Netflix documentary Don't Fuck With Cats. 
which is, <laughs> it, it, it explores this one particular individual who starts off his journey to being a serial killer by harming cats, right? And it's all about this creeping death of escalating violence that that happens. So that doesn't happen in this book, just to make it just to make it clear. But that's what it reminded me of. Step by step, her own coping mechanism is whispering in her ear that this is okay, and you're like, it's really not. And because you are so ill-equipped to communicate what's happening to you. This is how it manifests itself in your behavior. I mean, something as small and insignificant to Lily as taking Siobhan's mail from the shared mailbox is not okay. And yet it's just something that that she does. And I wondered whether, you know, she'd wake up one day and go, what have I done? But I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure she would. <laughs> well, you, you know, you kind of hope that eventually, once you get beyond the parameters of the book, maybe both of these characters might have the potential to but you know the point is you don't know to to reflect back on their actions but I think with with Lily as well a big problem was you know because you touched upon the grief element is you know there's this idea that grief gets better purely with the passage of time and I think linear realist fiction wants to reflect that and that you know we're so focused on this idea of a narrative arc that over the length of a book over so many words a character changes a character grows a character realizes something fundamental about themselves and you know the length of that book the length of that narrative is meant to reflect our own experience of time but the thing is grief doesn't experience time in a linear model you don't just grow out of grief by dint of the days passing. Steps need to be taken, help needs to be sought. And grief causes time to stagnate. It becomes this sort of circle with, without a rim. You're just in this pool of inertia. And that's kind of what Lily is meant to represent. That's why she doesn't have a kind of typical arc you know you don't have that sort of eureka moment at the end where she realizes all her foibles all her feelings it's a stop and start messy process and hers is all the messier because she's not taking any sort of active steps to try and improve her own suffering and therefore she's just like waiting about in it regular listeners will be familiar with our sister project the writing salon I'm delighted to announce that in time for Christmas, we've just launched volume two of our anthology series, Brand New Writing from Salon Members. The Writing Salon exists to provide its members with a safe, supportive community to develop their craft. All levels of experience are welcome, as well as all genres and formats. Some members have no previous experience and others write regularly for stage, page and screen. Whether you're new to writing or looking to improve or refresh your approach, then the salon is for you. We believe that writers should write for readers. So in this anthology, journey with us to the hidden worlds of sports doping inside the radiation zone or perhaps places even harder to access. Discover the theatre of war or just the theatre of mild disagreement. And whether you're interested in people who've mislaid their bearings who are coming to the end of their life or those dipping into the waters of rebirth. We've got something for you. You'll find naked lodges, insomniac lovebirds and more than a few vengeful ex-partners to guide you on your way. Volume 2 is titled 12 Hours to Del Mar. I'll put a link in the show notes. But for now, 
back to the show. Chapter 2, To Self-Implode While Lily's grief is very real and understandable, the grief Siobhan experiences in this novel is much less tangible. She's stuck in a weird state of preparing to grieve for the collapse of her relationship with Andrew, her married lover. In moments where she divests the bottle of its final contents, you see that Siobhan self-medicates throughout this book in an incredibly self-destructive way. There's that pervading narrative in her head that people like me don't deserve to be happy. Reading her, I was screaming at the novel, wishing she'd stop making all the wrong decisions. But to me, that's what makes her so real, because when their lives have stalled and they feel stuck, real people do often make terrible decisions over and over again, despite knowing better. Exactly. And, you know, you put it exactly right, which is in the way that Lily is grieving a loss. Siobhan, from the commencement of this relationship, is engaged in this strange sort of precocious preemptive grieving for the inevitable. And when you know something is destined to fail from its conception, how do you function within that except to sort of self-implode? She's aware that sort of nothing she can do will salvage it, will improve it, because its circumstances, its context is completely beyond her control and her volition. But within, you know, within the kind of place of impotence that she is within the relationship, she then applies that to her own inability to extricate herself from it. She is made powerless by the relationship and she then allows that powerlessness to consume her ability to make any decisions regarding it. Absolutely. And I've, I found that her anonymity as the other woman you know this dirty secret that nobody is supposed to know about that really impacts her because she would love for the world to know that she is having this relationship with this guy and yet no one can know and it's almost as if it's not actually happening isn't it yeah which i think you know facilitates then you know the self-medicating the 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 self-imploding because this aspect of her life that is giving her her entire sense of purpose is also a secret. It's it's only hers. And therefore, she almost feels like she has carte blanche to operate however she wants within it without there being repercussions. Because it's not real. It's It feels fundamentally unreal. And therefore, she has no responsibility to keep her head above water within it. It's fascinating. They both have very different mother-daughter relationships in the story and I'm fascinated by that I'm fascinated by biology and I know that you have a particular interest in body functions uh, and things like that and there is a there is a huge amount of that in in this story and it's very visceral and it's very emotionally engaging but the mother-daughter relationship is is very well-trodden ground and what I liked about what you've done is that you've taken two very very different relationships the grief from a relationship that was actually pretty good is palpable and there is almost a desire that Siobhan wants to have some kind of relationship with her mother that isn't just making her mother be proud of her but I think there's a sense that Siobhan needs to fix her own relationship with herself before she can address her relationship with her mother is that fair yeah I think because you know Siobhan and Lily in not in what was meant to be any kind of clear-cut way but in a slightly messy way, their lives were, or as characters, they were meant to be sort of 
dichotomous with each other. They were meant to be sort of binaries of a type. Um, and part of how that is reflected is in their um, respective maternal relationships. And, you know, part of Siobhan's problem is because she sees herself through the eyes of her mother, who is an incredibly complicated person. But like you say, Siobhan has her own shit to work out. And she views her mother as an antagonist, which her mother doesn't want to be. Her mother is clearly a very sort of highly strung, slightly megalomaniacal individual who in turn has had her own griefs, her own problems that she then imposes upon Siobhan. Siobhan takes that as an attack and retaliates rather than trying to build something healthy. And part of you know why Siobhan is so keen to retaliate instead of sort of arbitrate that relationship is because of her own personal suffering. Things are going wrong in her personal life and in her personal romantic life. And as a result, she allows that to poison all the other relationships around her because she she sees her self-worth through her romantic entanglements. And so she is worthless if she isn't loved romantically. And so she doesn't want to be loved by her mother because that's not good enough. That that's, comes nowhere near making her feel like the person she wants to be, which is someone who can be loved by a man. Yes, there is a huge amount of self-imposed jeopardy, I think, on Siobhan. And she has decided, to me at least, that being unworthy, as you say, means that that gives her carte blanche to go and ruin every relationship that we might she might have because she is not deserving of it. And there's something deeply tragic about that we've talked many times on this show about characters having or or people having a very clear capacity for self-destruction but not everybody sees it through she seems to be willingly fast forwarding the jeopardy which is interesting because we are all byproducts of our environment and the, and the way we were brought up and, and the, the influences that we get exposed to and i'm sure if we were to ask her mother about her relationship with Siobhan, we get a very different perspective and we'd get to ha- perhaps have a view of Siobhan that not even Siobhan sees, which I which I really loved. But it's this huge amount of standing on landmines that don't need to be exploded, right? Yeah, and I, I think, like you say, we're products of our environment and part of that environment is the landscape of Northern Ireland. And like you say, if you were to ask uh, Siobhan's mother how she interprets Siobhan how she interprets that relationship I do think there was a sort of systemic per communication that filtered in from my generation's parents into my generation and I think it was because our parents were experiencing their latter adolescence and then early adulthood during a time of kind of chronic silence um when there was so much being so much that wasn't allowed to be spoken of and when they come then out the other side of that all they wanted for my generation was to have a better time than they had but part of that was insulating them and not allowing them to know the extent of what they were lucky enough not to live through but also I think there was a slight you need to compensate for what I missed out on. You know, I didn't get to have this experience, this experience. I didn't get to thrive in this way because of this environment. So you need to do it instead. You need to do it in my place. And I think that's where 
Devon's mother gets her slightly toxic classism ideology, you know, you need to rise up from where you've come from, you need to be better. But also I think why there is such a gulf in communication between them, because her mother is unwilling to talk about Siobhan's father, about the circumstances of Siobhan's kind of early childhood. And that has filtered now into their adult relationship. And there's so little that they now can't talk about as a consequence. Chapter three, a mother's trauma. At the beginning of this year, I'd never come across the notion of intergenerational trauma, and now it's come up for the fourth time on this podcast, most notably, and for the first time in Series 5, Episode 9, with Angela Findlay. What I've learnt is that the scientific and biological reality of trauma, or perhaps guilt, being passed through the womb from mother to child is very real and very prominent. Siobhan experiences this firsthand as her mother constantly expects her to live the life she didn't get to have because of the Troubles, the Northern Ireland conflict which ended in 1998. An expectation to live life to the fullest to make up for your mother's losses, it's a heavy burden to bear. But on the Troubles, while Common Decency is a novel written about contemporary Belfast, the character's always come first. The setting is very much secondary and at times I even forgot where in the world I was because Susanna's characters are so compelling. I loved this because The Troubles is very well trodden ground in literature so it was great to see a unique take on it. Rather than framing the novel around the conflict, Susanna practices an amazing restraint when introducing The Troubles. Not as a big feature of the book, but as a way to dig deeper into the notion of a strained mother-daughter relationship. Something that bothers me sometimes um, is there's a there's a real willingness and it's, um, kind of recourse to continually relegate Northern Ireland to the troubles from a political standpoint. And, and I completely get that in that we are still experiencing, feeling, witnessing the aftershocks of that. But ultimately, you know, the novel set in Belfast, Belfast is a European capital and it is susceptible to all the failings of any European capital. You know, there's um, class disparity, there's racism, there's transphobia, there's homophobia, there's um, structural inequality. You know, Belfast is no different or special to any European metropolitan centre in its feelings. And when we reduce Northern Ireland to the troubles, we wind up occluding the experiences of those who are oppressed now for reasons that are nothing to do with the troubles. And it absolves us of having to care about those people because we just have this shadow of a conflict continuing to like dominate the discourse. And so the Belfast I wanted to write was modern Belfast, which, you know, has all these problems, but it would be remiss not to also address how the troubles continue to be symbiotic with the lives of those still living there. And and I think, you know, it's a complicated place. And and I and I think that's just what I was trying to do. You know, I wasn't trying to, you know, create any logos. I wasn't trying to make any sort of dogmatic overarching statements about it I was just trying to present how complicated it is to live there now in the way that it's probably complicated to live anywhere but to just pinpoint a few of the specificities 
of that complexity. And, you know, the relationships between the two generations, I think, is an interesting way of doing that. I'd love to ask you about, because this is your second novel now, and I know you've written poetry. When the first book is being produced, and I talk to a lot of debutante writers, when the first book is going through its publication process, there is a, a sense of, of calm and silence and also foreboding as well, because it will eventually make its way out into the world. And then it does, and people say various things about it. Some of them are great, some of them are not great. And then you get the difficult second album. And I'd love to know about your thoughts on your first book, having now written your second. Are you, do you think, a different writer? Are you perhaps less obsessed with what people say about your work, having gone through it once? Because it impacts people in different ways. And I just wondered what your experience had been like. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I don't think I have a sort of, I don't think I fully kind of delineated my thought process about it yet. You know, some days I really strive for this kind of placidity where I'm like, you know, it's about the work, you know, it's all about the work. Um, <laughs> opinions don't matter. Critical culture is a cul-de-sac. Critical culture is a dog eating its own ass, you know, it has nothing to do with me. I'm just there to put the words into the world. And then other days, you know, I'm getting a, a 12 month subscription to a newspaper at six in the morning so I can read a 50 word review which is mostly just a summary of the plot <laughs> or the press statement the press yeah. release normally yeah and I'm like god you're truly mad um and I think I think that's the thing is you you fluctuate between being very very magnanimous and being completely unhinged and that aspect has not changed from the first novel to the second novel. I was exactly the same with the first one. I was exactly the same with this one. I imagine I will be like this for everything I write in perpetuity. I will just fluctuate between, you know, trying to think about what I wanted for the work, whether in my own eyes the work does that, and just desperately, desperately wanting to be told I'm a good little writer. <laughs> I find it fascinating that, as an art form, the novel, it can do extraordinary things because if you gave this book, Common Decency, to 100 people, you might get 100 different, in fact, you might even get more than 100 different interpretations of of these relationships and these topics. And I think, you know, as as writers, I, I had an interview recently where I said, look, I, I like to ask this question and, and I won't in this one because of what happens at the end of the novel. But I would normally say, you know, if you were to meet these characters a year on or 18 months on, what would they be doing? Where where are they in your head? And, and the writer brilliantly said, well, what do you think? Because it doesn't matter what I think because I didn't write it. But what do you think as the reader? And as a writer, I'm always very conscious that the second the words are out there, you have no longer any control over the way that people interact and the way that people consume your work. But that doesn't mean I don't care what the reviews say. right? And, and there is a massive disconnect. And I think that's a flaw at the heart of every writer is that you say one thing, it's all about the art, I'm just here for the art. And then actually you're crippled with anxiety and you read the reviews and they're never as good or as bad as you fear or hope. So it does, in the end, it doesn't really matter. But that doesn't mean we don't fear it, which is brings us back to Lily and Siobhan as flawed characters. I think writers are flawed as well because there's that inherent disconnect between what is obviously the right answer, which is don't worry about it, and what we do, which is take out a 12-month subscription to read a 50-word review. 
Yeah, and I think almost I wanted to sort of touch upon the kind of whole like cognitive maelstrom of like the production of art, the interpretation of art, the subsumption of art into like, you know, critical and reader culture. I kind of wanted that to be a sort of side theme within the book because, you know, you've got these two characters who are fundamentally misinterpreting one another but also you have these instances within the book where both characters try and engage in some way with art you know you've got Lily trying to use Wuthering Heights as a sort of conduit back to her mother because that was her mother's favorite book you've got Siobhan desperately trying to have an academic's understanding of canonical literature so that she can become worthy in the eyes of her boyfriend and then completely berating herself when she can't understand a poem. And I, you know, I think that was sort of reflective of my own relationship with creating and um, engaging with art, which is, I think more so as time goes on, it's not the positivity or the negativity of the reviews that drive me mad. It's thinking that a reader has misinterpreted something I intended, which is a terrible way of thinking about it. And it's fundamentally flawed because there is no right or wrong way to interpret a piece of art once it's out there. And and if you're a writer and you, you are writing your book you know, your work as dogmatic as there is one way to understand this and it's my way, then you're only going to come up against disappointment. But the, the thing I am having to get to grips with as time goes on is, you know, in a review and a reviewer interprets something I've written in this way and that's not what I intended at all. And the way to think about that should be in a kind of, oh, well, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that potential interpretation rather than, you know, balling up your sleeves, putting them in your mouth and jumping in the nearest body of water. I think, though, there are several things that could be said about your book and maybe even have been said about the book that, to me, are laced with misogyny. And and they relate to, you know, oh, not, an- not another millennial, screwed up millennial female, you know, is, is never something that would be labelled a, a male writer when what has been the case for many years has also been, you know, deeply flawed, equally stereotyped, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder whether, you know, we're trying to find a story where there isn't one, but that we could, somebody could very easily say that about your work. And a conversation I had with the fabulous Kit Duval recently, she, she said, you know, we were talking about the fact that until everyone on the planet has a window they can look through and see a world that they recognize, then as artists, we are failing and we need to create worlds that people understand. So respectfully, if that means we have another screwed up millennial female, then yes, we're going to get that because there are, there are more than one type, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, I read this novel not that long ago um, called Lote by a writer called Shola von Reinhold. And um, there's this brilliant bit in it when um, they're talking about uh, art and the creation of art and one person expresses I think a sense of tedium at at the novel implies that um, the novel is dead and the protagonist who's a person of colour responds well no um, what you're bored of is the white male literary canon and if you think the novel is dead maybe what you actually mean is that white men should stop writing for a while but the point is no one is saying that but if you're going to say that, you know, we're bored of this one type of thing, then look at kind of what was 
canonically ubiquitous for so long and ask if ask yourself if you were ever bored of it and if the answer is no maybe you have to address what the problem in thinking is there because like you say there is there is no one blanket kind of dysfunctional millennial woman you know there's a whole gambit there you know and and i guess this got popularized into a kind of global phenomenon by fleabag and fleabag is one very specific type of dysfunctional millennial woman um you know she's she's highly intelligent and she's witty and she's thin and she's white and her dysfunctions are reflected through her lens of self-confidence and it, and it's brilliant but you know we have to think about all the messy millennial women who aren't intelligent who aren't confident who aren't witty who aren't white who don't have access to all these things that she then has the ability to be dysfunctional within you know there are a million different environments to facilitate dysfunction by people who might on paper come under the same category and yeah it's yeah it's just it's dumb that kind of thing is dumb <laughs> The book has been out in the wild for some time now. Have you had the opportunity to move on to another project? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm finishing off a collection of poetry, which is coming out next year. But I've started writing a new novel, which is in a way not so thematically distinct from what has come before, but in kind of, I think, in an aesthetic way, a completely like insane radical departure from anything I've done before uh, and you know how that might end up is it's fundamentally unreadable but I'm having a blast <laughs> <laughs> well we wish you well with the poetry collection and with the unreadable <laughs> novel <laughs> common decency is out now Susanna Dickey it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you <laughs> conclusion a massive thank you then to Susanna Dickey for today's episode and to recap what have we learnt Deeply flawed and frustrating characters are authentic. Characters won't always align with your views or do the things you expect of them, and that's more than okay. Our job as writers is to challenge our readers and their perception of the world. Characters don't have to have a traditional narrative arc. In fact, stuff tradition, follow your own course. Characters don't need to learn and grow through the course of a novel and experience a eureka moment. Sometimes flawed characters never learn. Sometimes grief-stricken people only spiral downwards. Keep it real. And finally, readers are allowed to interpret your work whichever way they want, even if it doesn't conform with your own views as the writer. Don't feel offended by their reading. Instead, be intrigued by it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information, a full transcript of this episode, and how to find our new anthology, 12 Hours to Del Mar. Additionally, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, not just behind the spine, but in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list for the new year, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. 
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Thank you.